actual Hebrew word that has become part of the English language. A word that's used in only one context. At the end of a prayer, you say, it means, yeah, so be it. It's a kind of verbal signature by which you affirm that you're in full agreement with what has just been said. And because what you say is said to God, you should always be careful about what you sign up for. What you say Amen to. About what you say to God. Now, it's a serious matter to say Amen to something we say to God. But it's an even more serious matter to say Amen to something God says to us. For God's word is always true. When you say Amen to something God says to you, you can always be sure that he can and will do what he says. And that he'll hold you to your agreement. What you signed up for. Now, this morning we continue our series in the book of Jeremiah. We've called it Living in Hope. And we find as we come to our reading in a moment, that Jeremiah the prophet says, Amen. Not to something he prays or says to God, but he says Amen to something God says to him. For he says, Amen, Lord. And what I want to focus on this morning is to ask whether we are prepared to join with Jeremiah in saying, Amen. Hence the very short title of the message this morning. Amen, for the rising intimation. Amen. Are we agreed? So, let's look at what we've been asked to agree to. Let's look at the context, and we turn to Jeremiah 11, page 769. As always, it helps to have a Bible in front of you. And especially this morning. If I gave you a big bit of paper and just said, don't bother reading this, just sign it at the bottom, it'll be okay. I wonder how many of you do it. You say, well, he's the pastor, I can trust him. No, you shouldn't do that. You need to know what you're signing up for. So, let's read this remarkable account. Jeremiah chapter 11. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Listen to the terms of this covenant and tell them to the people of Judah and to those who live in Jerusalem. Tell them that this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says... Cursed is the man who does not obey the terms of this covenant. The terms I commanded your forefathers when I brought them out of Egypt, out of the iron smelting furnace. I said, obey me and do everything I command you. You'll be my people. I will be your God. Then I will fulfill the oath I swore to your forefathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey, the land you possess today. I answered, Amen, Lord. The Lord said to me, proclaim all these words 
in the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. Listen to the terms of this covenant and follow them. From the time I brought your forefathers up from Egypt until today, I warned them again and again, saying, Obey me. But they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubbornness of their evil hearts, so I brought on them all the curses of the covenant I commanded them to follow, but that they did not keep. Then the Lord said to me, there is a conspiracy among the people of Judah and those who live in Jerusalem. They've returned to the sins of their forefathers who refused to listen to my words. They have followed other gods to serve them. Both the house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken the covenant I made with their forefathers. Therefore, this is what the Lord says, I will bring on them a disaster they cannot escape. Although they cry out to me, I will not listen to them. The towns of Judah and the people of Jerusalem will go and cry to the gods to whom they burn incense. But they will not help them at all when disaster strikes. You have as many gods as you have towns, O Judah, and the altars you have set up to burn incense to that shameful god Baal are as many as the streets of Jerusalem. Do not pray for this people nor offer any plea or petition for them, because I will not listen when they call to me in the time of their distress. What is my beloved doing in my temple as she works out her evil schemes with many? Can consecrated meat avert your punishment when you engage in your wickedness? Then you rejoice. The Lord called you a thriving olive tree with fruit beautiful in form, but with the roar of a mighty storm, he will set it on fire and its branches will be broken. The Lord Almighty who planted you has decreed disaster for you because the house of Israel and the house of Judah have done evil and provoked me to anger by burning incense to Baal. Because the Lord revealed their plot to me, I knew it. For at that time he showed me what they were doing. I'd been like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. I didn't realize that they plotted against me saying, let us destroy the tree and its fruit. Let us cut him off from the land of the living that his name may be remembered no more. But O Lord Almighty, you who judge righteously and test the heart and mind, let me see your vengeance upon them for to you I've committed my cause. Therefore, this is what the Lord says about the men of Anathoth who are seeking your life and saying, do not prophesy in the name of the Lord or you'll die by our hands. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I'll punish them. Their young men will die by the sword, their sons and daughters by famine. Not even a remnant will be left to them because I'll bring disaster on the men of Anathoth in the year of their punishment. This is the word of the Lord. Now, before we look at it, I'm going to pray very briefly and ask God to help us to understand and to appreciate what this says. So, if you're in agreement at the end, you say Amen and expect God to do what you asked Him to do. So, let's just pray for a moment. Make the book lift to me, O Lord. Show me yourself within your word. Show me myself and show me the Saviour. Make the book lift to me. In Jesus' name, Amen. Think of a marriage ceremony. The minister says, first to the groom, will you have this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife? To live together according to God's ordinance in the holiest state of matrimony. You recognize I know the words so well, having said them so many times to other people. 
Will you love her, comfort her, honour and keep her in sickness and in health, and forsaking all other, keep yourself only unto her, for as long as you both shall live. Now at the end of it, he does not say amen, though he could. He says, and she says later, similar words, I will. They are being asked to make promises and the terms, the conditions are laid down. Of course, they don't just hear about them when they stand up down here in Charlotte Chapel. They already know what they're going to be committing to. When I say this to the groom, he doesn't say, hmm, let me think about that. Or, could you repeat the question? No, he says, I will. Now, a marriage is a binding legal agreement between two parties to which they freely commit themselves. If behind the groom stands the bride's father-in-law with a loaded revolver, and when he hesitates, he says, I will. No, he freely agrees to the terms and conditions. Now, the Bible has a word for that kind of agreement. It's the word covenant. A marriage is a covenant between a man and a woman. But a covenant in the Bible can be made, or to use the Hebrew idiom, a covenant can be cut between any two parties, between people and even between nations. I guess we'd call it a treaty these days, something like that. The most remarkable covenant of all is recorded in the Bible. It's not a covenant between two people and two nations. It is a covenant made by the Lord with the nation of Israel. He made it first of all with an individual called Abraham. And then as he promised, that covenant was confirmed with the descendants of Abraham who were the people of Israel. Now you can find the plans, as it were, for the wedding ceremony, the covenant ceremony, at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. As Moses is about to leave uh, this life, he says to the people of Israel, now, here's the plan. When you get over the River Jordan, you're going to come to a place between two mountains. And here's what you're to do. It's a remarkable story. He says, six of the tribes of Israel are to stand on the slopes of one mountain, Mount Ebal. The others are to stand on another mountain called Mount Gerizim. And the priests will stand in the middle and you'll face each other across here. And they're probably talking here about, I don't know, one and a half million people, a couple of million people, some people believe. You imagine that, you know. What's Murrayfield Hall? 70,000. Okay, multiply it by 20, 30, 40. And they're facing each other. And what they're to do is to read out the terms of the covenant that the Lord has given to them. And the priests read them out. And after every term that's stated, the people shout in a loud voice, Amen! And it actually happened. You can read the story in the book of Joshua, chapter 8. That was the response. Amen! Now, this covenant is the background to what the Lord says to Jeremiah. Okay, a thousand years have rolled by. The descendants of these people are now the people of Judah, just a tiny remnant of the whole nation of Israel, the southern part. This is the background, if you look at the text in front of us. This is the word that came to the Jeremiah from the Lord. Listen to the terms of this covenant. Tell them to the people of Judah and those who live in Jerusalem. Remind them what they've signed up for as a nation. Remind them of what they said Amen to. 
And the Lord summarizes here the terms of the covenant. There are negative terms and positive terms. First of all, there are penalties for non-compliance. Or to use the wording in the document, there are curses for disobedience. Tell them that this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Cursed is the man who does not obey the terms of this covenant, the terms I commanded your forefathers when I brought them out of Egypt, out of the iron-smelting furnace. But there are also promises for compliance, what are called blessings, for obedience. I said, obey me. And do everything I command you. You'll be my people. I'll be your God. Then I will fulfill the oath I swore to your forefathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey, the land you possess today. Now, Jeremiah hears this. This is the word just to Jeremiah, first of all. The Lord is giving him instructions. He's saying, this is what you're to say. And when Jeremiah hears this, he immediately knows what the right response is. He says, Amen, Lord. Now, this is no glib sort of, yeah, this is what you're supposed to say. Because Jeremiah knows, by agreeing to this, he is agreeing with the Lord that these people that he's going to preach to are going to suffer the curses that he's just said amen to. Because they disobeyed the Lord. But he also knew that justice must be done. For God is just. We sang it at the beginning. A God of faithfulness and without injustice. Good and upright is he. If God fails to act, he will contradict his character. And that's why, painful though it is, he says, Amen, Lord. Now, although we may not be Israelites by birth, most of us, can we say Amen to God's justice this morning? Is there not deep within us a God-given conviction that right should be rewarded and that wrong should be punished? Think, you only need to turn open almost any newspaper any day and you'll see a family there that believe that justice has not been done. Their child has been knocked down by a drunken driver and he gets 18 months penalty. And they say, this is not right. Now, if you don't believe in God, why is it not right? Listening family last week and they take the Reader's Digest. I don't know how many of you do. We don't actually take it. But if you look in the March edition, this month's edition, uh, they report a survey by YouGov of 1,261 people. And they gave them 16 hypothetical cases, court cases, based on reality, of course. And said, what do you think the penalty should be for each of these cases? And then they averaged them out. Do you know what they found? In every case, the people thought the punishment should be greater than was actually carried out by the courts. Where did you get that from? But think also of the case, and again you read it almost every day in the newspaper. Someone has done something terrible, committed a murder. And finally, the person responsible is caught and sentenced. And if the family feel the sentence is appropriate, they stand in front of the media, or their lawyer reads out because it's such a painful business, and they say it's been a terrible experience. Nothing can bring our loved one back but we believe that justice has finally been done. If they were Hebrews, they would say, we want to say something about the sentence. Amen. Now, before we are too quick to say amen to God's justice, for others, we need to think through what the implications of God's justice are for us. And that's what the people of Judah and Jerusalem failed to do. 
when Jeremiah, as the Lord had told him, went out into the streets and began to proclaim the words and terms of this covenant, the people were not prepared to say, Amen. They may have said it, but they certainly didn't mean it. So look with me at the response of the people, which is what follows in the rest of this chapter. I simply want to say, in the time available to us, you can identify three strands in their response. Three wrong responses to the covenant. And each one follows from the other one as night follows day and is worse than the previous one. First of all, they were guilty of ignoring the warnings of the covenant. You you can imagine Jeremiah going out into the streets and proclaiming, you know, like an old town cry, He, he, the word of the Lord. He's not made up his message and dreamt it up. He says, this is what the Lord has told me to say to you. Listen to the terms of this covenant and tell them to the people of Judah and to those who live in Jerusalem. He issues the Lord's message. It is a continued call to obedience. Verse 6. Listen to the terms of this covenant, he shouts, and follow them. From the time I brought your forefathers up from Egypt until today, I warned them again and again, saying, obey me. But there is also repeated warning against disobedience. But they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubbornness of their evil hearts. So I brought on them all the curses of the covenant. I had commanded them to follow, but they did not keep. It is a warning from history. And as has often been said, if you don't learn from the mistakes of history, you just live to repeat them. And to suffer the same consequences. Yet, as we'll see, as he proclaimed his message, the people of Judah and Jerusalem didn't pay any attention to his warnings. I'm sure they liked the promises. I'm sure they prided themselves. We are God's covenant people, rescued from Egypt. We belong in this land because God promised it to us. They liked the promises, but they ignored the warnings. They wanted the blessings, but they failed to take into account the curses. But it was impossible. Jeremiah says, you can't have it both ways. Judgment was follow. Jeremiah says, it happened in the past. Look at our northern neighbours, Israel. They've disappeared off the map. Why? Because they were disobedient. So why do you think you're going to be exempt? He says, you're just following the stubbornness of your evil hearts. Now, what about us? Let me ask you a simple question. If you are a Christian this morning, by God's grace, you claim to follow Jesus Christ, as we'll see under a new and better covenant, but that's even greater penalties if you disobey it, greater blessings, do you think you're exempt from God's judgment? Do you claim, yes, isn't it wonderful, Ephesians 1, 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. You read all those blessings, you think this is absolutely fantastic. But you recognise the consequences of disobedience. Or you say that's the Old Testament, that's the way they operated then. The same Paul who wrote Ephesians also wrote Galatians. A letter to Christians. And he issues a warning. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. That's written to Christians. You reap what you sow. 
So if you're a Christian and you're sinning regularly, I don't mean there's no one who's sinless here, but if you persist in going your own way, disobeying God's word, living in some situation that you shouldn't be, doing what you shouldn't do, watching what you shouldn't watch, whatever it may be, do you think you can just go on doing that and nothing will happen? Because I belong to Jesus. When I was younger, we used to sing a song. It's a great song, actually. It's sung by a converted cowboy. It is no secret what God can do, what he's done for others, he'll do for you. It's a great song, and it's absolutely true. But there's another side to it, which we would never put in a song. It is no secret what God will do, what he's done to others, he'll do to you. If you disobey his word. Now, don't ignore the warnings. Because if you assume you can sin with impunity, you will sin with impunity. If you think you can sin without any consequences, you'll do it. Just as the people of Judah did. After ignoring the warning of the covenant, things got worse. Notice the second response. Ignoring the warnings of the covenant. Secondly, breaking the terms of the covenant. Verses 9 to 17. Now, when Jeremiah proclaimed his message in the streets of Jerusalem... There was no outward sign that the people didn't like it. They didn't throw bricks at him or boo him. In fact, they were all flocking into the temple. It looked like religion was on the rise or appeared to be so. Uh, Good King Josiah, who was born at the same time roughly as Jeremiah, had come to the throne. And he, he, he instituted a program of renewal. He closed down all the pagan shrines. He sacked all the priests who practiced idolatry. He cleaned up the temple. And during the cleaning up of the temple, guess what happened? One of his cleaners came to him and said, King, we found an old scroll in here. It's the book of the law. Now, most people believe the book, the scroll, was the book of Deuteronomy. Now, you imagine when the king is read to the king, he's aghast. Because he reads the terms and conditions that were laid down. And the curses for disobedience. And the people have all said amen and signed up for this. And he calls the people back to repentance. And I'm sure when they had this big meeting, they all said amen. But it was all a front, you see. There was outward observance which masked secret sin. And the Lord says to Jeremiah, don't be fooled by what they're saying. The reality is different. Then the Lord said to me, there's a conspiracy among the people of Judah and those who live in Jerusalem. Things ain't what they seem. Now, you can have the same thing in a church like this. We can all sing the songs, say the prayers, go through the motions. But God sees the heart. Sees what we do in secret. Sees what we hear, understands what we think. And what is it these people have done? What sins have they committed? Well, there are two sides always to sin. You turn away from the Lord and you turn to something else. The Bible calls the something else idols or other gods that you put in the place of the one God. They've returned to the sins of their forefathers who refused to listen to my words. They've followed other gods to serve them. Both the house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken the covenant I made with their forefathers. And the Lord says the terms of the contract have been broken. Therefore, what's going to happen? What are you going to suffer? The consequences of disobedience. And again, there are two sides to it. The Lord says, I will not listen to you. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I will bring on them a disaster. They cannot escape, although they cry out to me, I'll not listen to them. And he says, your gods, the ones you've chosen, will not help you. They can't help you. The towns of Judah and the people of Jerusalem will go and cry to their gods. 
to whom they burn incense, but they will not help them at all when disaster strikes. Verse 12. As you read this, this is not just a dispassionate sentence of a judge in court. This is the passionate anguish of a betrayed husband whose wife has made the vows and then been unfaithful. You can see it. We don't have time to look at the details, but if you read it, you can see on the one hand, righteous anger, Sister Jeremiah, don't pray for them. Then on the other hand, you can see this, this, this continuing love for his people. He says, what, what's my beloved doing? So we make a very great mistake when we think that the opposite of love, what is the opposite of love? We think love and anger don't mix. In the character of God, they mix absolutely perfectly. The opposite of love is indifference. I mean, if you walk down Princess Street and saw a kid throwing a brick through the, one of the windows, you, you might be a bit annoyed about it. If you looked and saw it's one of your kids, you'd feel a lot different about it. Oh, never mind, I really love him, you know. And you'd still love him or her. <laughs> I'm sexy about this. Women throw bricks through windows too. But you see, God's love and God's anger are perfectly balanced. And the Lord is just full of anguish because he said it's too late. The beautiful tendered olive tree is about to be struck down by lightning. Just like that. Verse 16. Disaster decreed. The Lord Almighty planted you as decreed disaster for you because the house of Israel and the house of Judah have done evil and provoked me to anger by burning incense to Baal. So, what about us? Back to the terms of the covenant. Back to the terms of God's law and His justice. Are you still happy to say Amen? Because if you think it through for a moment, and if you're honest with yourself, as God is honest with us, the reality is, all of us have broken God's law. All of us are guilty before God. Our situation, God's verdict is all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's not an exception in Charlotte Chapel this morning. Certainly not in this pulpit. And God's sentence is the wages of sin is death. In covenant terms, we face the curse of the law. What we deserve. God's righteous law. Philip Ryken comments in the book I've recommended, if you can save it, about £25, but well worth it. Since we cannot help but say sorry to God for our sins, we cannot but say amen to the curses of the covenant. There is no way round the curse. Now, maybe you didn't realise that this morning. Maybe you thought, oh, I'm sure when I get to heaven, I'll say to God, well, I've not been perfect, but who is, you know? I mean, and I'm better than most people. Like, do you know my next door neighbour? It's a lot worse than me. Guy I work with, oh, dear me. No, all of sin, all in the judgment, all facing the curse. That's the bad news. But here's the good news. God has made a way by which the curse may be removed. And we're going to see it later in Jeremiah if we persist with this. God has made a new covenant. How did he do it? Well, in the most amazing way. This is the good news of the gospel. But you need to know the bad news first. If you don't know the bad news, you won't see any need of this. And if you don't know how bad the news is, you won't know how great the good news is. Because it shines against, the light of the gospel shines against a very black background, dark background. How did God do it? By taking the curse on himself in the person of his son. On the evening of his betrayal in the Garden of Gethsemane. What was Jesus looking to? 
Yeah, the terrible agony of the cross. We saw some pictures of that reenacted and how great that in our city we complain how godless we are. Let's support what's happening. Make the cross known. But the real agony was not the physical suffering. Thousands of people died on crosses at Roman times. Some all on one day. Oh, the greatest suffering was the cup that Jesus looked into on the night was betrayed, the cup of God's wrath, the curse. Separation from God. Bearing sin. And he said, not my will, but yours be done. He willingly went to the cross, suffering the curse we deserved, so that we can be, as we sing, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Here's Paul writing that same letter to Galatians about what Jesus did. Very important words. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That's what the law said. But Christ took the curse. And he says, now this good news is not just for Jews who lived under the covenant, it's for all people. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that's us, most of us, through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Which will help us to live a life that pleases God. Wow, this is fantastic. Amen? But if we're to enjoy that blessing, we have to put our faith in Christ. We have to recognize our rebellion. We have to turn to Christ and say, Lord, I never realized what a terrible state I was in. How bad I was. I never realized the punishment I'm facing. Lord, I turn to Jesus. Help me. That's what faith is, forsaking all. I trust him. Now, there is only one alternative if you choose not to say amen to Jesus. And you see it as we come to the third response to the people of Israel. Ignoring the warnings of the covenant, breaking the terms of the covenant, thirdly and finally, rejecting the messenger of the covenant. Don't shoot the messenger, we often say. How often it happens, though, that we do shoot the messenger because we don't like the message. Jeremiah's message is deeply unpopular, but he can't see it from the response of the congregation. But the Lord says, they don't like this and they're going to try and kill you. The plot to kill Jeremiah. He says, I've been like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. I didn't realize that they plotted against me saying, let us destroy the tree and its fruit. Let us cut him off from the land of the living that his name may be remembered no more. The reason he was so unaware of the plot is that the plotters came from his own hometown of Anathoth. Therefore, this is what the Lord says about the men of Anathoth who are seeking your life and saying, do not prophesy in the name of the Lord or you will die by our hands. The opening verse of the book tells us that Jeremiah came from a priestly family in Anathoth. And we learn in chapter 12, next week, God willing, that the plotters come even from his own family. Your brothers, your own family, even they have betrayed you. They've raised a loud cry against you. Do not trust them, though they speak well of you. Why do they want to kill him? Well, the answer is obvious. They don't like his message. They don't like the message of judgment. Many people believe that these priests in Anathoth had sold out to Baal. And that when King Josiah came to the throne, he demoted them all or made the rest redundant. It hit them where it hurt. And then one of their own, Jeremiah, comes along and reinforces what the king has done. He's a traitor. But they cannot hide what they're doing from the Lord. And the Lord doesn't hide it from Jeremiah. Jeremiah doesn't say, thank you for telling me, Lord, I'm going to go and sort them out. He says, Lord, 
I leave them with you. I trust them to your justice. But, O Lord Almighty, you who judge righteously and test the heart and mind, let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you I have committed my cause. Now, again, we don't have time to look at our time is almost going, but I, I need to continue a little while, so don't grumble afterwards. Just stay here. All right? But there are striking parallels, are there not, with the Lord Jesus Christ? Led like a lamb to the slaughter? Betrayed by his own family? And what did he do? He entrusted his vindication to God. 1 Peter 2, 23. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who, what? Judges justly. Hard thing to do when you're under pressure. When you're maligned. In the case of Jeremiah, the Lord vindicates him because he assures him their plots will fail and you will live. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I'll punish punish them, their young men will die by the sword, their sons and daughters by famine, not even a remnant will be left to them because I'll bring disaster on the men of Anathoth in the year of their punishment. What about Jesus when he entrusted himself to God? What happened? Well, they killed him. Look like the end of the story. Where that's what the Jewish leaders said. He saved others, he cannot save himself. Where's your God now that you claim? But you see, great about the play, isn't it? Did you see it? The crucifixion is not the end of the story. The resurrection is the end of the story. The exaltation of Jesus is the end of the story. So on the day of Pentecost, the Apostle Peter says to the plotters. God has raised this Jesus to life, whom you crucified. We're all witnesses of this fact. Therefore, let Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. You cannot defeat God's plans. You cannot destroy God's Son. So we come to the last chapter, the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. How does it begin? The triumphant return of Jesus. Look, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. All peoples of the earth will mourn. Because of him. What's your response? So shall it be. Amen. See it? God's final justice. Unless you say, oh, I'm meant to Christ now, you will mourn then. Serious business. Life and death. Eternal life and death. This is the gospel. Here in Jeremiah. So where do you stand this morning? Are you living under God's curse? On death row? Or have you been set free? Stay with shared with the children, freed from sin, power of sin. Thanks be to God. Amen. Now, if you're a Christian this morning, I want to conclude with a note of encouragement. I'm almost finished. Just give me five minutes, all right? Almost there. But this is really wonderful. If you're a Christian this morning, you do not live under God's curse, you live under God's promises, His blessings. 
That's why we pray at the end of prayers. You've noticed, if you're a new Christian, you notice when Christians pray, they finish off the prayer and they say, in the name of Jesus, Amen. Do hate the way we mutter it as though we don't really mean it. It's like signing with a bit of pencil, you know, and think I might rub it out later. Instead of curses, we receive blessings. Instead of penalties, we receive promises. Here's what's called a promise box. The older people know what this is, don't you? We had one when I was growing up as a boy. I think you can still get them from Wesley Owen, but this is the faith mission probably, but no plug here. But it's, if you, those who don't know, it's a little box, and it, as you open it inside, it's, I'm going to tip it up and fall all over, but it's full of rolled up little texts. And each day, you, there's a little pair of tweezers in it. One of the older folk gave me this one. There's a pair of tweezers in it. Every day, you pull one out and you read it. Now, only if you're a Christian does it apply to you. Okay? This is the authorized version, by the way, so stay with me. All right? We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Does it apply to you? Only if you've been called according to his purpose. You see, here's the answer to all your prayers. Final verse, well, next to final verse from the Bible. For no matter how many promises God has made, the Apostle Paul says, they are yes in Christ, and so through him the Amen is spoken to the glory of God. Get that? No matter how many promises in the box and in the Bible, in Christ, if you're in Christ, they are yes and amen. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Yes and amen in Christ. Now these verses here. Call unto me and I will answer you and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Okay, we'll all say it if you're a Christian. Yes and amen in Christ, alright? Yes. Amen in Christ. I'm enthusiastic about this. Just, this is God's word. Delight thyself in the Lord and he will give thee the desires of thy heart. If you're a Christian, it's yes and amen in Christ. I'm not going to go through the whole box, all right? But here we go. He is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Yes and amen in Christ. I don't know. It's just wonderful, isn't it? Really. You never realize this if you're a Christian. Yes and amen in Christ. We could go on for a long time, but... What's this one here? I'd already done that one. Yeah, it's wonderful. Verses of Scripture, God's promises. You need nimble fingers and a good Jesus. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. Yes, and amen in Christ. I will freely heal their backslidings. Yes, and amen in Christ. And our verse for the year. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Only yes and amen in Christ. I hope you're in Christ. If you are, you're a spiritual millionaire. All God's promises find their yes and amen in Christ. Let's pray.